Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, adman and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Tom Tilly's backstory is as fascinating as his list of achievements is impressive. Having grown up in a religious cult, Tom finally broke free to chart his own course, becoming, amongst other things, Australia's leading voice in current affairs to young people. A gifted and popular interviewer, it was such a pleasure to turn the tables and hear him answering, not asking, the questions. So, Tom, welcome to Five of My Life. Thank you. Now, mate, you are on the book uh, flogging circuit. Are you thoroughly fed up with that or...? No, because I've spent um, 15 years of my career talking about other people's story, and this is my chance to talk about my favourite subject. So you don't get bored crapping on about yourself? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what is the uh, strangest question that you've been asked? Ooh, well, the probably the strangest one is, would you mind speaking in tongues right here and now? And you're like... <laughs> That's a bit of an awkward one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 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 given that you couldn't anyway. Exactly. <laughs> I never could. Have you read the book? <laughs> and, and do you find um, that most people haven't? No, most people are, are really good about it. And I think mine's pretty easy reading. It's, you know, it's not the deepest intellectual journey. It's more of an emotional, personal I, I, journey. I loved it. I, oh, I, thank know, you. Yeah, no, really. I really, really loved it. I mean, I mean, but, but full disclosure, I mean, you don't know me from a bar of soap, but mm. I studied theology at university. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. Wow. Well, I had to study up on it a bit. The way I expressed it in the book, I tried to make it simple, but I had to really learn about why my church was so wrong. And once I did it, unlock so many other things. So, yeah. So, with many of my guests, Mm. I say, how did you find the process of choosing? But I can't say that with you because you sent me an email back within about three picoseconds saying, easy, Mm. with your five choices. Mm. You just pull them out your ass or or, or, (laughs) are those are the five that, uh, you know? I've got deep... Deep loves and deep passions. So if you wanted to talk broadly across all different films, you know, I'd be hopeless. Or have you seen this? No, 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 no. But the things that resonate for me, it's the same with music. When something hits me, it's there for life. So when I have, yeah, generally an emotional connection with something, I think it stays with me forever. So you're the perfect five of my life guest. You know, some people go, oh, I haven't got one or I don't know. Oh, no, no, no. I've got them. I I know my favourites. I know when something really connects and... Because I'm connecting with it, I go back for it. I, I guess I get a chance to think about why. Brilliant. Well, listen, we're going to start, as we always do, with your film on Five My Life. Uh, and you have chosen the iconic Aussie Man from Snowy River, 1982. Tom Tilly, tell us about that. Well, this is an incredible movie. Maybe one of the best movies ever in Australian cinematic history. Um, I first saw it at the drive-in in Dubbo, where I grew up. So we're in the family um, Peugeot 504 uh, apple green. Mum later rolled it on the hay plains on the way back from Adelaide. <laughs> nearly mm-hmm. killed the family. Um, so this is where I saw this film the first time, and the last time I saw it was during a dreadful hangover, and I was in tears by the opening credits. 
but that's less about the hangover, more about the beauty of the music and the mountains. At the end of my book, you may have noticed that I called my son, Banjo. Maxwell Banjo yeah. Patterson. And that's for a reason. He was the first cousin of my great-grandma. The actual Banjo? Yeah. Wow. So, he grew up a lot like my mum. He, he grew up first in a farming family around the Central West. Then he moved to Yass. And then much like my mother, much like me, came to Sydney, went to school, made his life. And he was a journo at the Sydney Morning Herald who wrote his books on the side. That's where I'm going to stop comparing myself to him. So, so, so give me that relationship again. What, what's, what's My mother's grandma yeah. was his first cousin. Yeah, hey, I, that, that's definitely worth naming a child. Just. <laughs> and also, I, I love the uh, Aussie mountains. Yeah. I think they're beautiful. And to see um, snow amongst the Australian flora, like the gum trees, there's something absolutely remarkable about it. And then on top of that, to see a horse galloping through the snow in Australia in front of those gum trees, even though they're feral pests and they need to be eradicated. It's very beautiful. I watched that film having not seen it before. Mm. And, and and maybe it's because I'm a pom or whatever, mm. but but it, it didn't... It, it, it didn't, apart from Jim's ride, which you, 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 would, you wouldn't be human not to be moved by the, the, the horse down mm. the side of the mountain thing. So then I went back to the original poem mm. and, that, and that did do it for me. Then you get the narrative yes. of what's going on. You've got this fancy bloke, he's lost his horse and it's the, it's the dyed-in-the-wool Aussie that saves the day yep. um, against the odds. And then I think the movie really plays into Jim being, you know, the underdog. Yeah. The little man and rising above his station. I think that's maybe a very Australian thing that he goes for the sort of the boss's daughter, basically, which is, you know, every Australian's dream is to rise above their station. Do you feel that you are the underdog? Look, I guess I had my things in life that I had to work around. And in more recent years, I've, you know, had some amazing fortune and some great opportunities. So um, I feel really happy about those. Um, I don't think I feel like the underdog. But I guess I feel like I've had a few challenges, enough to write a book about. Right. Was Amanda the boss's daughter? No. I think, um, you know, we're quite similar. We're both um, country public school kids. Um, our parents are, you know, very similar in the kind of way they grew up, um, mostly in regional Australia as well. So, yeah, I, I feel like in the social strata, we came at very similar kind of levels. Right. Okay. So well, we didn't marry up, <laughs> married across, but I think that's good. <laughs> um, we're going to move to your second choice on Five My Life, and, and I really have to thank you for this. God, uh, you've chosen Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari, 2015. Blew my mind. To, uh, Isn't it good? Yeah. So, yeah, for anyone who's not across Yuval Harari's work, get across it. Um, he became famous for the book Sapiens, which he wrote first. Um I recommended you check out the sequel, Homo Deus. He came onto my radar because um, Bill Gates and Barack Obama were talking about Sapiens. And there was a moment there, probably around 2014, 50, where I noticed a few people talking about this saying, oh, it's, it's history, but it's gripping. Yeah. And so that was the first book. It's about the, I guess, why Homo Sapiens became um, so dominant, what was different about us, but it just breaks it down in the most um, interesting ways. And then Homo Deus is the follow up, you know, looking at where we might go from here. I found it genuinely confronting. I mean, I loved every, every page, but genuinely confronting. So it was in 1882, Nietzsche said, God is dead, mm. which then we, we can't understand how amazing a thing to say or to think how outrageous yeah. just i mean wow because whatever 
your God was, everyone assumed there was one. To say mm. God is dead, oh my Lord, mm. is I genuinely think that book is of a similar ilk because to throw doubt on consciousness you go holy mate the thing that makes tom tom and nigel Mm. nigel is we've got our own memories and our consciousness and there's nothing that could ever happen where a machine could replicate that or whatever else and and in that book he he was basically questioning the very foundations of our of our humanity in a way that you couldn't just dismiss as he was a whack job you go well blimey maybe in 50 years time you know, you, you won't die and, and you, you want a child and you'll press a button and there'll be a robot, Tom. And I mean, the whole thing just spun my head. Yeah. And potentially, as you suggest, looking back, this is a major turning point in history just before AI went to another level where we had to redefine our own value. Yeah. And what it is or was or is going to be. Terrifying and, and exciting and interesting. and Yeah. Look, part of the reason I chose that as well is because... In my own story, it's about a journey away from Christianity um, and building a life that I truly believed in. I realized, especially through the writing process, the bigger themes of my journey, and one of them was about rebuilding the values and, I guess, finding some of the payoffs that I got through religion in the secular world. And so, now, when I read something that really connects me with history in the way Sapiens did, where I really feel part of a longer story. Because I feel like in this day and age, as we sort of have this five-second attention span, like flicking through our algorithms and feeds, um, we're almost in this fishbowl kind of consciousness at the moment. So, anytime a great writer pulls me out of that and makes me feel like I'm just the same as someone 2,000 years ago that watched, you know, Moses walk down the street or even way before that. You know, even even the Bible is just such a, a recent frame of, of history. You know, it goes back millennia. So, whenever I feel part of that bigger story, that almost gives me the spiritual nourishment that I miss from the early days in church. So, I have to ask you, where have you landed spiritually, religiously? Essentially, I believe... Science is the best explanation we have for why we're here and what we're in and who we are. And then for the bits we can't explain, which are probably way bigger than the bits we can explain, that's where I stay open to learning and celebrating the mystery of it. Do you attend? Are you a churchgoer anymore? No. 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 So um, I, I went through this journey of finding out the massive problems with the church I grew up in in particular but then I went to a number of other churches and I actually found what I what I thought was the the perfect church which was not too insular engaged in the community around it not too dogmatic um, not too focused on bizarre spiritual experiences that not everyone will have and therefore then feel alienated and actually strangely enough it was kind of a progressive version of the Anglican church that right. I, f- I felt was the right kind of church but once I boiled it down to its most simple thing, Christianity, which I I came to believe was believing in Jesus and seeing him as your savior. That's, I think, what a Christian is, someone who truly believes that. I realized that when it all boiled down, all the noise, all the nonsense of some parts of the Pentecostal world, I didn't truly believe that story. I liked the story. I thought it had some great lessons, but was it the story? Is it my my avenue for salvation? No. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I was going to say similar journey. It's not true, but but I, I've been a seeker all my life, looking for, and I, I ended up going to the Quakers mm. because because what you do, we were fantastic people, but you you sort of strip away more and more stuff so you end up at the at the version that is you haven't got to pretend you believe anything and you go great yeah. whoa and then you go well then, then why am i even going but but i i i'd like to i'd like it if i did but i can't pretend that i do if i don't but it does leave a hole the notion of walking hand in hand to a church on a sunday if you actually believe it and being nice to people so there's sort of um i wish someone would invent a secular church that 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 replicated some of the good stuff yeah well well people have tried Alain de Botton has the school of life and oh, he, he's, I love him I yeah, love he, him he's delved into a, a lot of this stuff and you know I think he's just done well to to recognize that we need that but I don't think his school of life is 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 working quite the same there's there's something about religion that that really worked for people for a number of centuries yeah um, maybe even millennia uh, depending which one you're talking about so so, you, so Yuval said he couldn't have written the book without meditation do you do you meditate no for me that feels like I'm being told to go pray again right and, like, right actually triggers you it's it's a bit triggering for me. I hate. Oh, you should meditate. It's like yeah. no. Yeah. I've done enough down on my knees, and for me, it's almost the same thing. And actually, when I looked into what speaking in tongues really is, which is kind of a difficult question to answer, yeah, that's probably my the answer that the best answer I have is that it's it's close to meditation. It's a way of sort of um, honing in on a repetition that can clear your mind to kind of. I guess, drown out some of the noise and, and connect on a deeper level. And there was actually one study in America where they did brain scans on speaking in tongues and they, they found it had similar impacts, lit up right. similar different parts of the brain to when you're meditating. So I have to ask, slightly off topic, but how are your old crew going? Do they still exist? Are they? It's just been getting smaller and smaller. So I looked at the census figures um, and I think they're an underestimation. But in 91, when I was a kid, they were at 4,500. I'm still waiting for an update on this latest data that's just come out, but in the census before, they were at 700. So That's tiny. It's dropping that's off. tiny. It's a small niche. Yeah. yeah. A lot of these new, well, sects, that's technically what they are as a sect, they often only last a few generations because it makes sense to a certain group of people at a certain point in time, but as the next generations have to live out the dreams of their parents, which is where my experience kicked in. It was my parents' choice, not mine, and it didn't work. And so once you get to a third generation, it gets pretty hard to keep these organizations yeah. alive unless they're really good. Yeah. And, and this one had too many problems. Yeah. Gosh. Well, we're going to move to your third choice on Five of My Life, uh, and you have chosen the fantastic, we're going back to the 80s, the fantastic <laughs> Bizarre Love Triangle from New Order. This song, it has the the emotion, the euphoria. It's got so many tones. There's a tone of kind of reckless celebration, but there's a somber vibe to it. And then in terms of the musical style, it's almost the ultimate culmination of all my favorite kinds of music in one. So I went on a bit of a musical journey. That's another sort of story arc in my book, really, is the music, because I grew up with a lot of church music. Um, which meant that I learned to play guitar and bass kind of early, got into the Beatles, you know, learning my instrument, getting into the 90s grunge era, then realizing um, at uni that I loved funk music. I wanted it clean. I wanted to bounce on the backbeat, you know, 
James Brown through to a lot of um, wider kind of funk music. And then amongst all of that, I always loved pop, you know, 80s pop was kind of really defined itself for me. And so, yeah, this kind of like new romantic, um, new order, um, what's the genre called again? Oh, God, I wouldn't know what you'd call it. Techno, um, techno funk. Yeah, it kind of brings electronic, you know, house music yeah. into pop and melds it in this kind of like emotional, new romantic kind of journey where you've got these men sort of expressing more of their, you know, not your typical form of rock and roll masculinity. Yeah. And it all sort of boils up into this absolute banger. That song, I, I, I mean, you can say this about, I don't know, Come On Eileen or whatever else. There are mm. certain songs that are released that you could release them again mm. 40, 50 years later and they, no one would say, well, that's an old song. If that hadn't been released and you released it today, it would be a hit. Bizarrely, it actually wasn't a hit when it was released, but, but it's, it's one, wow. of, one of the best songs, I think, <laughs> ever recorded. Yeah. And, and the, the lyrics in it, holy... Mo- so the opening stuff, every time I think of you, I feel shot through with a bolt of blue. Mm. You go, wow, that's just... Yeah, okay. That's a, like a really thoughtful way... Of doing that, and is he talking about a love triangle, or he was interviewed and he, and and old dear old Bernie saying it actually, it's actually about drugs. It's not about mm. you know relationships. It's just the most multi-layered, rewarding song. So yeah, and it leaves the interpretation open to you. Great writing is timeless. A great voice is timeless. And then I think this this song came out at the right point of history, where the production methods they were using at the time, early stage digital stuff. Um, that's what we're using now still. So it was in the first part of that. So it sounds like it could be a contemporary tune and then it's got those timeless elements as well. I do like a good title. Mm. So that, so normally, if you're your run-of-your-mill pop mm. star, you take the most repeated phrase from the chorus mm. and that's the name of your song. Mm. If you're New Order, you, you call it Bizarre Love Triangle, never appears in the song. The word love doesn't appear in the song. You're just, I just, just uh, you know, I, I, just, everything about yeah. it is like the perfect piece of pop mastery, I reckon. Yeah, it, it leaves it to you a little bit, doesn't it? It doesn't sort of spoon, spoon feed the meaning. So tell me about client liaison. So yeah, I um, loved playing music as a kid, you know, had um, illusions of grandeur, but they were kind of shut down because the culture of our church, the revival centers was, you know, about putting all of your energy into the church, yep. being a humble person, not not being egotistical or too self-expressive. Um, it was seen that a career like being a professional musician would take you away from church and from God. So... I never invested too much time in these silly dreams. And so then I ended up after, you know, a long journey to many places. Music was just always there for me. I was, you know, playing in a band here or there. Never took it too seriously. I just enjoyed it purely for the love of playing in bands. That was my favorite thing. It wasn't about sitting in a room on my own so much and mastering a piece. It was getting in a room with people, connecting. And that's why I moved from guitar to bass because another friend um, who went to jazz school got really good on guitar. So, I slotted in on bass. But it was, I loved that because I'd gotten into funk music. Anyway, it always just sat on a low sort of simmer next to my journalism career, which started going well sort of in my late 20s. But, you know, I'd be playing a gig here or there every week or two around Sydney for years. This band became kind of cool in the early 2010s, like 2013, 14. 
called Client Liaison, and they were doing a similar thing to what I'd been doing in one of my earlier bands. They were embracing the 80s, bring in a little bit of like electronic house kind of sounds, a bit like um, New Order, and mixing it up with like really 80s pop vocals, sort of Prince-inspired, Pet Shop Boys, that kind of sounds like these guys are doing what I wanted to do, but they're actually good. Anyway, we end up friends with them. Then I get a call one day. Oh, it's normally just, you know, keyboard, backing track and vocalist, but we're putting a band together for a segment on Triple J. You work there, you play bass. Let's let's throw you in the mix. So we do it and then they're like, oh, that went well. Should, why don't we put you on stage? You, you can come on for those two feature tracks at the live show. I'm like, where's the gig? They're like, oh, it's in Melbourne. Okay, so, so I'm flying to Melbourne. That's never flown for too many gigs before. And what's the venue? Oh, the Forum. Oh, my church used to own the Forum. <laughs> so there I am in my 30s yeah. being invited into a cool band, never been in a cool band, hmm. and our first gig is at not only playing to over 1,500 people, which was the biggest gig I'd played by a mile, except for the church days where we played to thousands, but I didn't tell my school friends about those gigs, and it was in the venue where I'd been as a child in my early church days. Wow, wow. How, how did it go down? Well, we had a good gig. It was yeah. all good. Then the manager sits me down after, after about 45 drinks and goes, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm like, I don't, you tell me, mate. He's like, well, we're going to Brisbane. Do you want to come? So, three hours later, I'm on a plane to Brisbane, one or two hours sleep, and then I toured with the band for three years. Wonderful. Yeah. And, and, and albums were released? Yep. Um, we released an album. Um, I didn't do much on the album. I did like two, two slaps and that was about it. Um, I was like very much in the live show, a lot of choreography, a lot of sort of reworking the studio stuff into a live format that actually gave something on stage, something special. Um, we developed um, amazing choreography, costumes, special effects. We had dancers. And so we built up the show over the course of three years. And the biggest show I ever played was Splendor in the Grass in 2017. And we're on the main stage on Sunday night. And it was just something I'll never forget. Are you still doing it? No. Many things happened. But I decided to make my journalism career and now the new family or the early stages of forming that family a priority. So um, I ended up having to sort of step off the tour, but just had a beautiful, satisfying, ludicrous time. Oh, wonderful. Gosh, well, listen, so we are going to add that to the Five My Life Spotify playlist, nice. which going back to dear old Yuval Noah Harari, who said that algorithms were the most important concept mm. in the world, mm. is the Five My Life playlist is algorithm busting because your favourite song will be different to Albanese's, different yep. to Gillard's, different to Will Anderson's, whatever else. There is no, oh, right. you, you like that, so therefore we'll do this. It's completely utterly random so right. no one ever hears it <laughs> no it's on spotify but you if you, if you put it on my dentist yeah. plays it as as the background track oh cool so four and a half hours and you go yeah. hold on that's a bit of electronic choir yeah and then here comes the smiths and then here comes you know the bluebird and it, so it's a zeitgeist breaking playlist and then people are like why are those two songs together i want to hear the story yeah let's listen to the podcast yeah that tom tilly sounds like an interesting bloke exactly <laughs> Thank you. 
So we're moving to your fourth choice on Five My Life, uh, and, and you've been a bit random because you've said the hills around Mudgee. So I've been investigating, and there's Flirtation Hill, <laughs> Cannibal Hill, Round Hill, Bombira Hill. Are these names ringing yeah. a bell? Yeah, right. Yeah. So explain yourself, man. What 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 is it about? So the hills around Mudgee. So we. We could have bought a nice house in town, but my dad chose to buy a 12-acre block with nothing on it. So, we moved into a caravan. Right. I was My job was to clean out the Thunderbox. Um, we didn't have a bathroom. Anyway, we had a beautiful life. Um, was this on one of the hills or-, or? Yes. W- which one? A, well, just past Flirtation Hill under Mount- <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the one with the massive um, antenna was behind town and next to Three Poles Lookout. Right. So, right on the edge of town, 12 acres, backing onto probably tens of thousands of acres of crown land. Um, So, we just had endless amounts of bush to roam in. So, you know, down to school in town, it's a beautiful town. Um, The name Mudgee, um, it's an indigenous word for nest in the hills. Right. So, a lot of towns further out are flat, like Dubbo. But Mudgee is nestled in a beautiful set of um, mountains on one side. And then you've got the valley across the Kajigong River where all the wineries are before you see another mountain range. So, it is a beautiful valley. It's quite unique um, to that part of Australia. And so, those hills were my playground. Right. You know, up and down them, bikes, motorbikes, um, bushwalks, four-wheel drives, camping trips, mischief, mayhem, guns, adventure, everything. And so... We entertained ourselves in those hills. And so, whenever I drive back into that part of New South Wales, I just feel more and more at home. And it's like, I think we all have our, the topography we grew up in, right? Um, Especially if you've been in the country, that's your kind of landscape. So, the right amount of like how drive us, how green it is, you know, altitude, all these certain things can make you feel really at home. And so, wherever I travel, wherever I go, however coastal, however, you know, high up if you're going to some real alpine regions, um, that's my country. So, reading your book, I I was struck by a a sort of a conflicting thought where you had a really happy childhood. Mm. He's like a lovely family. And the picture, yeah. the picture I've got it in my file here of, of your family one Christmas. Like, if, if you could leave aside the, this might be based on a belief system that later on I won't believe in, you go, it seemed like really idyllic. 100%. Full of love, full of outdoor. Yep. I mean, just great. Yeah. So it's almost like, have you read um, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley? No. You can design human beings. Mm. So you have intelligent ones, but then you, you deliberately have ones, sub-epsilons that aren't. Mm. So, that, But they're incredibly happy with their mm. allotted role. <laughs> you, you know, and, so don't enlighten them. They're incredibly happy. If only I could have that's stopped right. asking questions. It's, that's exactly right. If you could stay sort of deluded, but you can't. But just the, the early years of... Tom Tilly seemed to be, you know, just wonderful. I just think you go off going off to camp and doing all yeah. that stuff. Well, it was really important to me to convey that in the in the book um, to do justice to my parents because, look, I guess I was worried about painting them in too harsh a light because the book is is not so much a work of journalism as memoir, but I guess the 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 frame of the way we share stories as human beings, we do. Not so much focus on the negatives, but we focus on the hardest parts of life. So, the biggest challenge to my story when you look back at it was that it was so good in so many ways, but if you're going to threaten someone's membership of their community, that is, you know, 
water, food, shelter, social connection is the next most important thing that we need. So even though your life can be so amazing, if there's a risk that you're getting shut out of your community, it's still quite serious. So that's where the story goes to. But absolutely, the country life, a good family, and, you know, we all feel down sometimes and whinge about our lives. And there's a few moments along the story where I'm like, I need to keep this in check, you know. Yes, I was brought up in a church that was flawed. And so, inevitably, I was going to have to deal with that at some point. But my parents stayed together. They loved each other. There was no abuse or alcoholism, you know. Yes, it was a bit too clean cut, but it's probably better than, you know, say your father having an alcohol problem or or beating your mother. As we were just talking about, growing up in this pristine bush on the edge of Mudgee, which is a, a beautiful community. So, look, I hope that came across that it was oh, a, a celebration as no, much as a critique. you did a great a job critique. of that. Yeah. And, and which makes me want to ask, tell us about your, your, your siblings. Yeah, so I'm one of four boys. I'm the eldest. And yeah, we've all been infected with this kind of a little bit of a dangerous passion for life. So we've all gotten into loads of trouble. We all ended up sort of kicking against the church in our own ways, but different for each one. The fourth child got a pretty easy run and suddenly had these very liberal parents, (laughs) not the ones I knew. I'm 41. The youngest is 27. Um, There's two in between. And yeah, we all went through our own weird journeys, but I was the first one to leave the church, which was harder on me for a while but we all ended up on the same page and and you're tight as a unit yeah yeah lovely yeah it wasn't like it was a black and white fight with my parents about the church they actually saw the same problems i did as well but had a different way of dealing with it and that's where we differed reading the book i I was sort of cheering on the the hard line pastor or whatever he was mm. who, who was sort of driving you all out because if he had been more reasonable mm. you would have stayed in for longer yes uh, and he, so, so whatever that you know arse hat was called excuse my language <laughs> uh, um you go good on you mate because yeah. you're because you're forcing the issue well that's exactly right i've thought about that many times if i hadn't been in such an extreme version of christianity i probably would have hung on to something that i didn't truly believe in yeah and yeah. So, and i think it was having real clarity that kind of fired me up, you know, and also going through the eye of the needle a little bit. um, That's what gave me my passion. Sometimes I ended up with a bit too much, but got myself into trouble. But that's what gave me this, a proper clean slate to rebuild my life only made out of the blocks that I wanted in the wall. Yeah. Good on you. And and, and also in the book, the the notion that, Judge people by what they actually do, their outcomes. Mm. So you can be quite observant to mm. whatever your particular tradition is. But if you're horrible to your mother, mm. horrible to your neighbours, yeah. terrible to your wife, you go, well, you can take your religion and stick it. You know, judge people by how, how they actually are. There's a wonderful clip. It's Bill Maher, the the, um, the American comedian, mm. who's at the... Have you been to the Vatican? No. This ornate, yeah. amazing, like, like, like sort of wedding cake yeah, type yeah. building. And he says to... Oh, I thought, sorry for the priest. He says to the priest, do you think if JC came back today and he looked at that, he'd go nailed it? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I meant. Yeah, I yeah. meant preach to the people in a different language, uh, have all those rules. <laughs> Hang or, on to all the money. That's right. Or love each other. Anyway, God, yeah, I love yeah. it. Yeah. No, that was the exact ruler I ran over our version of Christianity. I, I, I met these people that saw the more loving, compassionate side of Jesus and were doing good things for people in need. And I looked back at these pastors who were just 
judging people as to whether they'd conform to the rules that they'd made up about how they should act being in a certain sect and never talking about love, compassion or charity. And even Paul, I think, said, you know, the greatest of works of all is charity. So I'm interested that you've studied theology because I imagine what you've observed there about people wanting to do the right thing by people who need the help, that somehow being seen as a bad thing. Now, that seems to happen all the time and we constantly move away from core business. What, what, what's going on there? There's a tension between human nature. Uh, no, and- I love it because you, you, you've just said core business. That's it. So what happens is, and it, oh, this happens uh, it, it just all the time, is you get the core message mm. and then you get human-made structures and institutions built around it that then become more important than the original thing. Why do they become more important? Because you get people in them. It's a bit like who take pride in their work and that pride. Hey, yeah, and and it's it's a bit like um, if you're Mm. in a church and your uh, livelihood, status, meaning, everything come Mm. from the structure that has been built up, then you protect it for all you can. You want something to show for your work. Yeah, but but also it becomes the original message, the core message, as you say, becomes secondary. You go, actually, mm. I, I like this. It's like, um, dare I say it, some unions, I, I, I love mm. the unions, but some unions are appalling. They're run mm. for the people who run the union, not for the poor bloody workers. And you go, no, 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 this exists. It's like the health service exists mm. to make people well, not to provide nurses with jobs. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The religion exists to, in, in my version, to, you know, lo- love our fellow man, blah, 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 not to provide uh, work for the local church warden. It's defending your patch, isn't it? That's, That's exactly where it goes it. wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what I love about Yuval Harari's work or any deep work of history, that we go back and see the themes, and that just gives you the vague but probably useless hope that we might be able to address some of these things. So, as you're saying this, I'm like, all right, well, how in my life am I potentially getting away from the core of what's beautiful about something and getting more defensive? And and maybe part of the challenge is, as a human being, that once you get older and say you have kids and I'm just at the start of the journey, you're much further down that journey – you actually do have to protect your patch because you've got children to look after. So, potentially, you know, and this is the thing I tried to pick apart even why my parents made some decisions that in hindsight looked really bad to bring their kids up in a church that could one day boot them out. It's like, okay, I know my parents aren't evil. They're good people. So, how did these decisions happen? And it, these are chronological one-by-one choices that build on each other without the benefit of, you know, the clarity of hindsight. Um, we do these things that, are acting out of self-interest. And then you look back in history and go, why the hell did we do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's the wonderful uh, phrase that Billy Connolly had when he was asked if um, if he believed in God. Mm. And then he said, you know, no, I don't. But then he was fishing at the time. But then again, the salmon in that stream doesn't believe in me. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there has to be a sort of a, at the end of the day, no one's got a clue. We are all making it up. I should have said that at the start of this uh, interview. I could be wrong about which bit, every (laughs) single part. Absolutely bloody everything. And we're going to have to move on to your fifth and final choice Mm. on Five My Life, which is often my favourite. You've chosen my bike. (laughs) And is that a cycle? Is that a motorbike? What's that about? It's a fancy carbon fibre road bike. Oh, you eco-warrior, you. No, um... Annoying lycra-clad traffic-jamming mammal is right. what you should call me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's a bit like music. When I look back at my life, I realized there was always music, but there was 
there's always been bikes in my life and they end up bringing me undone later in the book when I have a motorbike crash, trying to do massive jumps after not riding a dirt bike for years. Classic. And actually, as a response to that debilitating, disastrous for my uh, left side injury, I went about rebuilding my body, went through all this hard work, rehab, um, five surgeries. I didn't think I was going to be able to walk properly again. And I thought in that time, what sports can I do that help me rebuild? So I thought I'm going to treat myself once I can once I can walk properly. I'm going to buy a decent bike and actually become one of those losers in Lycra. And um, I've become addicted to it. I've just done my second race. So Wow. And so, so describe the bike. It, it's part powered and part no no it's just it's just a classic it's like what they're riding in the tour de france it's like a classic ah, road okay. a racer right. just a racer um so you you're trying to get fit you're trying to go fast up hills you're trying to keep up with those other blokes so, um, so you, you do you do the peloton stuff and the big group rides right. um in sydney i'm smashing around centennial park or we're riding down to the royal national park sure. or up north so yeah i'm trying to ride about three times a week when I've got the time, I'm sort of doing 150, 200 k's a week. And I've even, yeah, just started to do these local criterion races, which is like me versus a bunch of um, teenagers and 50-something and, and dads and me somewhere in the middle, um, getting back into suburban sport for the first time in years. So you've got the quads of the gods, as they say. Have you? I'm working on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your accident, that really smashed you up. Yeah. So... Um, Really bad break in my foot. The foot is a, a shocking thing to injure because all those little bones are relying on each other. And they 53 have, bones or something. In the and foot. they all have cartilage in between them. And if you damage the cartilage, they start grinding and fusing. So I've got two big bones that are fusing, which means that foot is a bit lacking in some of its um, yeah sideways rotation. And I had a full knee reconstruction, ACL, meniscus, two broken, like the sort of footballer's career-ending injury and then a broken hand as well. So, so, so what the hell were you thinking? It was just bravado, was it? or, or? Just bravado. <laughs> well, well that'll learn you. I'd ridden dirt bikes my whole life and I'd had hundreds of spectacular crashes and always walked away and this time I didn't. Right. And it, it was a bad one, but it wasn't like on a whole other scale to so many other accidents I'd had. But this one, just I just landed badly. Or I was old, and the result was much more devastating. And it, it was a bit of a turning point for me. I was 36. I was living the dream at that point, touring with the band, full-time on Triple J. Everything was going well, and I was flying pretty close to the sun, as it turned out. So if you did believe in God, it was him saying, listen, mate, yeah, you think your shit smells of perfume, but I'm going to teach you a lesson. Yeah, I did. I had had this nagging thought that everything was too good to be true. And I, I don't think life needs to work that way, but it did. Now, now tell me, were you um, courting Amanda at this stage? Had you met Amanda? or We had met once in a bar. We were due to have our first date. But I went to Mudgee for that weekend and she had actually a date with someone else who didn't make the cut, as it turns out. And then we had our first, we were meant to have our first date the week after, but I had this big crash. Right. And I was in hospital um, post-surgery the night we were meant to be dating. And um, thankfully, she still went on that date when we re-scheduled um, and I turned up with a massive cast and um, a bit of a shattered ego. So she thought, this numbnut needs my help. Yeah. yeah some, someone's got to look after him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this guy... He's clearly an idiot, but I'll go on one date, um, just you know, not to not to hurt his feelings. And here we are. And and how has fatherhood been for you? Oh, it's such a big range of feels. It's we have like the most beautiful, happy, healthy boy, 
but it's been harder and more challenging than I expected. The the nights really, really kick you in the guts sometimes. And this this thing of um, trying to do your best on your home front, but keeping your career and your life going. I've been trying to finish off this book, you know, and then do the press for it. And, you know, we, we do tend to fall back into these gender roles where it's your salary for the moment, paying the mortgage, and I'm a bit more stressed about all that kind of stuff. It's yeah. it's a bit of a wake up call, and um, it's the it's the trying to do everything and being pulled between them that I hadn't experienced. And I don't think it's a funny thing about having kids. Everyone, you, you're nodding at me, you're like, yeah, I know, but you probably couldn't have explained it to me, right? As a father of four, if if you try to tell some you know intelligent enthusiastic energetic 34 year old what it's like to have four kids under the age of six they i mean they just glaze over they think you're making it up but you now know having had one times that by four mate and yeah well i love the idea of a big family but most people i know are talking about one or two well well, let me be a lesson to you so i am a one-man contraceptive campaign because our three turned into three and four Ah, yeah. The amount of friends that we've got, they've stopped at two because they go, "Look what happened to Nigel and Kate." <laughs> they <laughs> no, I, thought they were clever. But- I love, I love a big family. Yeah. I think it's the most beautiful thing to have a constant flow of energy and idiocy in your house. Like that's that's a good vibe. Yeah. Like, sure, I need the the odd bit of space and quiet time, but I I want the good vibes, you know. And I'm not I'm not saying you couldn't have that with a smaller family, but I I loved what we had, you know downstairs on the musical instruments jamming or down at the football club and you got you know kids in three different grades and you know it's all happening yeah so but, a, yeah the reality of it you you could probably tell me more about chatting to you earlier about about the book that i'm about to release about turning 60 mm. so I, i've had a house full of uh four kids and mm. a dog mm. and and my wife kate and in the last three months the, the dog has died and all four kids have left home wow so in terms of going full circle yeah, you go. Well, where's all the noise gone? It, it, you How does of, it feel? It, it utterly bizarre. I Good, mean, bad. I mean, I, I obviously I adore them. Uh, you know, they just love my kitties. They're fantastic. But you don't have to say that. By well, the way, no, we no, but, well, I've dedicated the book to them. But but uh, but but it's great. No, that doesn't yeah. that doesn't mean I wouldn't want them back. But but you go the mess in my house. If there is any, I've caused it. <laughs> no more shouting like King Lear at the wind going, for fuck's sake, could somebody? <laughs> but it's also, it's a moment to acknowledge the achievement, right? To get them to that stage, you and your partner, Kate. From I'm at the start, you're yeah. at that crucial middle stage of, of seeing them fly the nest. So, so my, my dear old dad is, is departed now, but he said his sort of objective was to get the kids, uh, me and my brother, to 18 and not be in jail or on jug. Mm, yeah, you got to yeah. set the bar low. Yes, right. And so all four of them aren't in jail and aren't on drugs, and we've just celebrated our thirtieth wedding anniversary. So, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm enjoying the quiet house just for you know for July. Uh, so, mate, before I let you go, we're going to have to come on to my now not so surprising surprise six question, which mm. is, uh, who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next? You know what? Uh, in the week that we're recording this, the week that we're in right now, I'm actually filling in on Channel Nine for a guy called David Campbell. Ah, now I love the bloke. He he has so many dimensions to his life, and and if you ever say to me, "Oh, what's a role model?" It's like you know, normally people say, "Oh, someone that's done something." But I I love people that that do a lot, you know. So he does his acting, cabaret, singing, Jimmy Barnes' son, hosts on Channel Nine, but also has like 
three kids, including twins, and there are so many dimensions to his life, but he seems so at peace with them. Plus, he obviously has an incredible backstory growing up in that family. So I would recommend David Campbell, DC. I'd love to get David on. Are, 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 you, are you destroying the franchise or are you, are you holding <laughs> Trashing <up> the-, <laughs> the ratings, yeah. I'm doing that for him so they beg him to <laughs> come back him from look holidays. Good. Yeah, exactly. Very good. Great suggestion. We'll get on the blower to him. Nice. It's been so nice hearing you discuss your five, mate. Oh, and, thank and, you. And congratulations on your book. It's a, it's a ripper read. If you haven't already read it, please check it out. Um, and, you know, all the very best. For, yeah. for, for the adventure that is ahead of you. I feel like when you say that, you, there's a knowing look in your eye about how challenging and wonderful that will be. Well, so so I, I feel like I'm winning in a race that you didn't ask to be in. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was a choice. It wasn't an accident. Um, when, I, when I see a, a dad who's done well, I'm, I'm just tuning in that extra bit harder now. <laughs> so, Tom Tully, thank you so much for sharing your five on five my life. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.